Each day, all over the world, thousands of healthcare learners experience the power of simulation. This is the BS Podcast. Wait, what? 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 Beyond Simulation. Exploring the stories of the people behind these masterfully implemented simulations. Each episode discovers the real stories of how these connoisseurs got into simulation and why they stayed. This is the Behind the Music podcast of the world of simulation. Hi, everybody. My name is Christine Park, and I'm the director of the Simulation and Integrative Learning Institute here at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. One thing about me that is not simulation is that once upon a time, I was interviewed for a position with the CIA. Cool. I feel like we should have some James Bond music here. Hi, everybody. My name is Bob Kaiser. I am the Associate Director of SAIL in something about me that is not simulation related is that I've shared that I'm a diver, but I just went on a diving trip and I did something for the first time. I went diving at night, which I thought would be really scary, but it was so cool because the dive master could use his flashlight to point out things and we saw octopus, squid, and this huge crab on this rock. So that's my fun item. I feel like that would be very scary for me. That would feel like a horror movie for me. Yeah, it's so cool. Okay, Bob, are you ready to talk some BS? Let's do it. Okay, uh, actually, before we do, um, I have something to ask you. So I heard that there is a new Netflix series called Cat People that is seeking to elevate stereotypes of cats and their adoring owners. Have you Get heard out. about these series? I have not. Oh, my gosh. No, I have not. Uh, I'm not sure when it's going to start, but... I literally just heard about this today, uh, so you and me both have some homework to do to figure out when this is going to be on. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Okay, well, great. Um, it's my pleasure today to uh, introduce our guest, who is Dr. Julie Carey, and Dr. Carey is a doctor of veterinary medicine and the director of simulation-based education at Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome, Julie. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation. So let's just uh, teach us something. What is veterinary simulation? Yeah. Um, so I think very similar to human simulation, uh, veterinary simulation covers a wide range of topics um, and, uh, again, allows us to um, help our learners uh, immerse themselves in real-life situations without... Um, the, the stress and the danger of, of some of the elements that happen actually in real life. Um, so some, some important differences are we're very much at the beginning of our journey in simulation. So we're about 20 years behind human healthcare in some of our technology and, and how we work. Um, so we're, we're pretty bootstrappy at this point, or a lot of programs are. Um, we, when we talk about talking to um, veterinary communication, we're thinking about clients and you guys are animal people. So you recognize that animals don't walk into the veterinary clinic with their own checkbook and can make their own decisions, right? We have to get the information and convince clients that um, what the, the right course of action is. Um, so, you know, we, we cover the gamut of communication, clinical reasoning, 
technical skills, um, leadership, um, and, and we do that in a lot of different ways, uh, focused on a lot of different learning levels. I'd love to hear something a little more about the technical side of vet, veterinary simulators, because for us, the range is from a premature baby up to an adult. That's about the extent of it. But I can imagine that you might be going from, I don't know, a mouse to a to a horse or something like that. So how? how Elephant, yeah. So um, we don't cover all of the species that, that we work on, um, even in their training. Um, some students don't cover all of the species that they may, may end up working on. Um, but our major species uh, will have um, simulators for uh, dogs and cats um, and different elements of that. We often simplify a lot of the, the, the models that we have um, for things like surgery procedures, um, so if you come into our lab, you might see a, a piece of PVC pipe with a, a sweatshirt sleeve essentially over the outside and some tubing on the inside, um, replicating the reproductive tract that when we spay an animal, they need to know where their clamps go and where to cut and all of those sorts of things. Um, we have a number of, of models for IV catheter placement, intubation, all of those things that require a lot of practice. And you're right, we go all the way up to we have um, three full-size horse models in our simulation lab. Um, it, it sometimes looks a little weird, especially if people aren't used to what they're going to walk into. We also have probably eight heads um, and necks of horses because a lot of the work that we do in putting catheters in are in their jugular veins, and so students need to know how to be around them. Um, and so we have a lot of, of those kinds of models to really highlight what they do. We have... Um, a cow, uh, the students have named her Gladys and her calf named Ferdinand and Gladys will sit around and give birth uh, with students assisting her all day and never kick anyone. So that's always a really helpful thing. Um, so yeah, we, 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 we run the gamut in size and we have to think a lot about different contexts. Um, so for veterinary medicine, you know, similar, I guess, to human health care, where you may be in primary care or emergency, we have those spectrums as well. Um, in addition, we do a lot of production animal medicine. So thinking about how our food sources, how we keep food safe, how we get those animals um, raised in a healthy, happy environment, um, and then into um, the, you know, the, their, their purpose in life. And so that is a little bit different context than talking to somebody about their um, pet cat or their pet dog or maybe their pet chicken. Um, you know, if you've got a huge flock of chickens, thinking about if you have an infectious disease, how we keep that controlled. So not only do we have a big spectrum of patients, but we have a big spectrum of context that we really have to train our students to be prepared for when they graduate. And, and what about the communication skills? Like, how do you, because I'm assuming that communication with animals, um, a little different, but communicating with their owners um, or their caregivers, like, how do you train that in simulation? Yeah, yeah, that's actually one of our hallmark programs um, at WSU. And we, similar to the work you do, Bob, and have done, um, I have a um, coordinator for our simulated clients who trains, um, finds actors for us 
trains them up, helps them understand the context that they're working in. Um, and then our students interact with simulated clients, in this case, of the animal, and they need to get the history, understand what the client's concerns are, what their worldview is, their perspectives, all those things that are important in healthcare regardless, um, but our patients can't speak for themselves. And some of our patients even hide their clinical signs when they get to the veterinarian, right? Because they're, they're prey animals and that's what you do if you can, is you hide your signs. And so we need to understand what the client was seeing, what their concerns were. Um, and then from there, we, we teach them how to, you know, use relationship-centered care to make decisions about what makes the most sense for this client in this context with their resources for this animal, how we advocate for the best things that we can do within those resources. Um, and so we spend, we spend a lot of time really working on those things because Veterinary medicine includes things like end-of-life care, making decisions about euthanasia, which are really important, critical conversations that we need to have. And the way that we have them influences not only the client and how they see their veterinarian, how they respond to the grief of losing an animal, but it also impacts the veterinarian themselves um, with how, how they view their profession, how long they, um, you know, what their comfort level is and having those discussions. And, and so, you know, again, we run the gamut from, from wellness and vaccines. Um, we do a lot of obesity conversations. Um, you know, so, so all of that, that material is really important that we give our students a chance to get exposed to. I love, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. And I've, I've noticed actually in my own personal life, the end of life discussion uh, with humans or with a physician, um, which I've had, and then with you know, loved ones, and then with my animals, that they approach it a little differently. And, and I, I would love to see us all come together and do simulations together and then kind of see you know, how, how, what their similarities are and, and the differences, just as a side note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually got to do that a little bit with um, a group of healthcare human healthcare providers. Oh, really? we, we walked through a veterinary euthanasia case to just give them some ideas of the, the differences and how they might think about um, ways that some of this... Um, translates. And so it was, it was, I think, a useful exercise. We ended up getting into a lot of weeds about sometimes things that they experienced with their own veterinarian that they were disappointed with. So, you know, again, yeah. another reminder of the importance of doing this work and continuing these conversations. I agree. would love to know um, about if you could comment about agency on the part of the animal because of course they cannot tell you right I'm ready to move on or I would like to stay alive how do people get to understand but they definitely do communicate that how do people get to understand that yeah, you know, I think um, some important things that I always keep in mind and I try to impart to the, the um, learners that I work with and even my own practice, you know, recognizing that, that 
owners and caregivers know their animals the best. And so one of the things that we'll have conversations about, hopefully early before we get to a point of really having to make tough decisions, is, you know, what are the things that most matter to this animal? How do you know that they're having, you know, good quality of life? What are the things that they care about? So I'll use an example from my own life. Um, I had a, a fairly young dog. He was only three when he was diagnosed with cancer. And we sat down because I had a couple of people that were in our lives that were going to be affected by whatever decisions we made. So we made some very clear decisions about how we would know if it was time for Trucker to go. And we settled on, you know, he would, if he didn't get excited when he saw the neighbor kid come over, because that was his favorite human in the world, if he didn't want peanut butter anymore, and if he didn't want to drink any beer. So those were his, his big three. Um, and so the day that he didn't want any of those was our very clear message that that, that was time. Sometimes they're not always as clear cut. Um, and so, you know, we talk, to, we talk a lot about, you know, how do you engage clients in making decisions that are good for their animal and also good for themselves, right? And so it's a really interesting um, dynamic that we, we have to think about um, on, a, on a daily and hourly basis sometimes. Um, and so recognizing the agency of the animal and um, how to honor the role they've had and, and what they do um, and then the, the role they play in, in a human's life and, and what's going on there. So they can be complicated conversations for sure. So I have a question. So for your simulated participants, um, do you have people who have animals or have you found that that really doesn't affect their ability to um, simulate um, a patient's caregiver? Yeah, it really depends um, on what the, the client situation is that we're trying to help them. If, if they are to um, simulate a uh, new owner, then it's not always as helpful for them to have a lot of experience. We do um, work to find people with maybe less experience so that they can not bring biases or, or you know, preconceived notions or assumptions to this, the simulation. Conversely, um, I'll go back to the production animal medicine, some of the large animal things. If you didn't grow up on a ranch, it's very hard to understand how that works. And we, we, we have a few simulated um, participants who we have been able to train over the years and take them out to operations and have them spend time with people. And we've been able to train them up to where they can reliably portray somebody in, in a production situation or a, in a horse situation pretty well. But it is far easier for us to be able to take somebody with that background and then train them how to be an actor versus training an actor how to really understand that, that nuance and that complexity. So we, we do both. We come at it from both directions. That makes sense. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that crash course on veterinary simulation. It, it, it feels like that we have a lot to learn from the incredible things that are being done on the veterinary side and maybe uh, there's room for collaboration in the future. Yeah, I think so. So let's talk about you. What are three things that you are professionally known for? Mm, okay. 
Um, well, in, in context of the conversation we're having today, um, I am the first practicing veterinarian. There was somebody that um, has a DVM and works in nursing uh, before me that got certified as a healthcare simulation educator. Um, we are the first accredited program for SSH specific to veterinary medicine, which we're very proud of. Um, and uh, the other thing that I'm known for is um, I'm a large animal surgeon. And uh, so um, I often met clients at their worst because I did a lot of emergency work. Um, and so uh, part of my um, thing that I do well is I can help people be okay with the outcomes and that students, residents, um, and clients kind of regardless of what happens with the animal. So we, we do our best for the animal, but quite often, I don't want to say quite often, but we're rural enough. It takes a while for animals to get to us. And sometimes that's, they're not the greatest outcomes. Sometimes we have amazing outcomes and either which way I want clients to be comfortable with what happened. And I want students to have learned something and, and respect what happened along the way. That, um, that sounds intense, but it also sounds, that skill that you described you have sounds like a bona fide superpower. <laughs> I agree. Great way to put that. So, uh, Julie, uh, before we started recording this podcast, I spun a random number generator. I'm um, looking for a number between one and five, and I got the number two. So I'm wondering if you could give us two items that are not on your CV, two fun things that people may not know about you. Well, uh, the probably one of the quirky things is um, I was potty trained in an outhouse. Um, so my uh, family is from Wyoming, and we um, spent our summers in a pretty rural area. Um, and uh, so that was uh, one of the most amazing three-holer outhouses ever built. Um, and they had modified a little seat for me. Um, so that's uh, one thing most people don't know. Um, and probably kind of unique. Pretty unique in this day and age, for sure. <laughs> okay. And number two? And number two, I'm a trail runner. And uh, my close friends know that I have often... Um, trouble staying on my feet. So it's not uncommon for me to have to glue myself back together after a good trail run. So, uh, yep. Uh, klutzy and trail running are not always great together, but I have made them work. <laughs> That's another superpower, I think. <laughs> All right. So Julie, um, one of the things that we like to explore with our guests is, um, who is their kid self? So tell us a little bit about who is Kid Julie. Yeah. Um, so Kid Julie, um, I, we, uh, like I said, my, my family um, has a guest ranch and we were in the mountains. And so um, Kid Julie was uh, often um, a Pied Piper of sorts. So it wasn't uncommon for me to have whatever guest kids that we had staying at the ranch um, and showing them where the tadpoles were and doing things that uh, maybe the adults weren't so excited about, but it seemed reasonable given that I uh, seemed like I knew what I was doing. So they would follow along as well as whatever pets that we had. Um, 
And then uh, I spent a lot of time in the corral and helping my dad with the horses. And so pretty early on, um, I was taking out rides and, and showing guests our, our countryside and making sure that we got home safely with all the horses and all of the people. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kid Julie. So there was a little bit of responsibility and a lot of freedom there. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, the show is, you know, we talk about simulation. So how did you get into simulation? Sure. It's, it's a really good question. Um, a lot of my career has been being in the right place at the right time. So I, I came from private practice to WSU with the agreement that I was going to help out for nine months. And then I was going to head off and go do something else. And that was 15 years ago. Um, so when I got here, a couple of things were happening at the same time. One was WSU was starting one of the first communication simulation programs in a veterinary school. Um, there had been a few others, um, but they were kind of early adopters in, in the process. And we had, they had brought in um, Suzanne Kurtz, who led some of the communication um, stuff in human healthcare. And so her, her last career chapter was to come over to veterinary medicine and help us get started. Um, and so I ended up, we started within a couple of months of each other, and I ended up working with her quite a bit and starting to understand what was really possible and what there was evidence for, both from the communication side and then the ways that simulation could be used to teach so much that we were struggling with at the time. The other thing that sort of hit at the same time is that there were a number of studies, including an internal study at WSU of our graduates, and the people that were hiring them were really disappointed and frustrated with their lack of surgical skill and their lack of communication skill. And as a surgeon, I really wanted to help us figure out how we could address that. And, and knowing how stressful surgery is and that most of our graduates are going to do surgery. And like human healthcare, where you're going to have advanced training, very few of our graduates actually go on to specialty training. Many of, you know, even if they kind of tailor their practice, they may not be specialists. So I really wanted to help us figure out that challenge and figure out how we could really raise the bar on how we were training students and even how we were training residents and interns and some of the things that I remembered struggling with in my residency that seemed like we should have been able to practice those more. So arthroscopy was a big one for me that I struggled with. And once I got my hands on the scope and I was able to practice but it seemed like I shouldn't have been, shouldn't have needed to wait until I was doing surgery on my own on horses before I got good at arthroscopy. So I got really excited about what human healthcare was doing. There was some beginning work in veterinary medicine. And so there's a small group of us that sort of work together in thinking about these things. Um, so it was in the right place at the right time, went ahead and got some medical education degrees and uh, got certified in healthcare simulation. So I actually knew what I was doing and I didn't feel like I was just making it up um, and got to be challenged uh, to really think about how we could do this. And so um, that was about 10 years ago that we got really rolling in this, 15 that we've been um, kind of dabbling in it. 
it's interesting listening to you, the similarities between a healthcare simulation uh, on humans, <laughs> make sure I, make sure I uh, specify that, um, and I think that we're answering some of the same questions, you know, and some of the same um, desires for um, further into educational practices and exper experiential practices, and then it seems like that's, it kind of mirrors that in, in your world also. So here's my question. Um, that, what a great explanation of what got you to simulation. So what keeps you in simulation? What passions keep you tied to continuing this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, um, the things that keep me in simulation, um, first, I'm going to say I have an amazing team. Um, we have built a small but scrappy team that we um, we have each other's back. We, we try stuff. We're willing to fail. Um, and so without them, I, I couldn't do any of what I do. So um, a shout out to my team. The other thing that keeps me in this is the students um, and watching, you know, and, and you guys know this, uh, people that are listening know this, that in the beginning, you get some pushback about simulation, right? Like, I, I know how to talk to clients. I've been working in a practice. I don't need this. Or, you know, I, I know how to scrub. I don't, you know, you don't need, you don't have anything to show me. And then seeing the, the very rapid transformation to, oh, I didn't realize. And I, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that I got that feedback and, you know, seeing what they, what's possible. And so, you know, we've, we've been able to, to collaboratively build some simulations um, because we, we don't have cases that are already written for us, right? So we write all our own cases and do all of that. And so we've been able to work with students and think about, okay, so what do you guys feel like you need? What are things that you want um, in addition to what we feel like they need? Um, and so it's been really fun to see how much they can get out of it and then how passionate they can get about it. Um, so those are the things that keep me excited and then bringing new people on board and helping them see the possibilities when we get new faculty in, um, you know, we've got a new criticalist coming on board and she's really excited about CPR. We've been running CPR simulations for a while now, um, and we're going to do some clinical trials and figure out student numbers and, you know, what it takes to, to train them well. And so I'm excited for her to get to see what's possible in the research realm with simulation and then also how that can translate into preparing the teams better for um, their work in ICU. So That's amazing. I, I feel like the uh, small and scrappy start is a place that uh, is, a, is a concept that will resonate with practically every simulationist. <laughs> so now, if you were prevented from doing anything that you currently do professionally. Uh, so no teaching, no work with animals. Um, what would you be doing professionally? And for the sake of this exercise, we're not, we're gonna uh, not bring money into it, so you're stable financially, it's all good. Well, there's always fly fishing guide, you know, like can't go wrong with that being on the river. Um, but I think, Honestly, I'm so fascinated by how we can use language and understanding how people's brains work. I think I might want to be a negotiator of some sort. Okay. Well, we'll call you uh, the next time we... <laughs> right. And what, tell me a little bit more about why you yeah. want to be a negotiator. Like, 
Well, it's, it's just been something I've been thinking about a little bit lately. I've been, uh, some of the reading I was doing um, recently was talking about things that they learned from, you know, talking with hostage negotiators about how they approach things or peace negotiators. And, you know, we do that work all the time, right? Healthcare is one set of negotiation, whether you're in veterinary healthcare or human healthcare. Um, but just thinking about like how you try to understand somebody and then get them to, you know, maybe see some different ways of, you know, different possibilities and how you can use the way you ask questions to really help people kind of flip on where they think they are. I just think that's really fascinating. I don't know that I'm good at it, but I think it's fascinating and figuring out how to, how to do that more would be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love that tie-in, um, and especially thinking about cl- what clinicians do with their patients and this whole idea that uh, people do things, maybe do the same thing, but for different reasons. And I think it's the exploration of people's values, what's important to them, and then tying that to you know maybe the negotiation of the action that you want. So I love that. I think simulation is a perfect place to practice all of those. So I love that you brought that up. So still, I, I get that it would be different than what you're doing now, but it's still tied to simulation, I think. <laughs> so I'll go back to, I'll be a fly fishing guide. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, Julie, so one great thing about simulation is that we can do it over. Uh, But of course, in real life, we can't do that. But if we could, what is one thing in your life that you would do over or maybe do differently? You know, one of the things that I, I talk to students about is you may not be able to do it over, but you can rethink how you did it and do things different the next time. So I, I know there's a lot of things that I do that way. Um... Yeah, I don't know that there's anything that I would do over. I think, you know, the things that at the time were so hard, um, you know, first jobs or, or, you know, particular points in your residency where, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anyone. For me, some of my most important learning came out of those points in time or the things that I care about most. Um, So, you know, my residency was uh, a pretty tough time. But it also informs the things that I want to do with residents and the way that I want to treat them. And I don't know that I would have that same perspective had I not gone through those things. So I I don't know that there's anything that I would do differently. I love that answer. Thank you. And flip side of the coin, what is one thing in life that you would absolutely do the same? I think that I would absolutely uh, become a veterinarian again. Um, and that's not always an idea shared by by our profession right now. It's a pretty tough time in, in veterinary medicine. But I think it's it's just such an amazing profession that gives us so many opportunities and su- such a great chance to be a part of people's lives in a really interesting way. That's... Can you say more about, um, you mentioned that it's a tough time in veterinary medicine right now. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. I think... Um, there, there's some some strong evidence that the the mental health of our profession is not um, where we would want it, um, and that there's there's some significant struggle there. We're, so we're trying to get our arms wrapped around how do we how do we support veterinarians becoming more resilient? How do we choose for more you know resilient students? Um, how do we help them develop those skill sets that are important for reflective practice and being able to do 
things that, that help them be um, more successful long-term. The, the pandemic was very hard for all of the reasons that it was hard for healthcare, right? We had curbside appointments, um, people that were frustrated. It's, it's harder to make recommendations over the phone, not see how your messages are, are getting hard landing. Um, and that was coupled with the fact that so many people went out and got new animals, right? They, they adopted the dog they've always wanted because they were home, which is amazing for all of those animals. And I'm, we're all very happy that they have homes, but the workload on veterinarians really exploded. Um, so the average wait for an emergency visit in a, in a, in an urban setting right now can be six to eight hours. Um, so we've just, the, the pressures on the system are really causing a lot of pressures on, on veterinarians. Um, and then they're dealing with the things that everybody's dealing with, with, you know, the fact that maybe people have forgotten a little bit about how to be, um, nice and, and polite and understanding of, of things. And so, you know, veterinary medicine is a time where sometimes we're asking people to make tough decisions or make tough choices. And sometimes those things can get taken out on veterinarians. And if we haven't equipped them to be able to sort of process that and let it go when they really hold on to that, which veterinarians tend to be perfectionists, it creates a kind of a, a tough cycle. So, um, so there's, there's, there's some challenges there. Yeah, that, that really resonates. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So we want to go in a little different direction, um, if you are game, Julie. And um, so, and we actually want to play a game of sorts. So what we want to do is we want to put 60 seconds on the clock. Um, I have my timer right here. And what we're going to do is we're just going to ask you a series of questions. Just say the first thing that comes into your mind. They're all fun questions, uh, nothing, nothing too, uh, too serious. And um, we'll just see what happens, okay? All right. So, okay. So I've got 60 seconds on the clock, and we'll let Christine, uh, Christine will start with the first one. So, and the timer has started now. Where is the last place you traveled to by plane? By plane, Washington, D.C., right before the pandemic. Hmm. What's your go-to guilty pleasure? Uh, a good glass of wine. Who is your favorite fictional character, or a fictional character that you really like? Mm. Big Bird. Do you think there's life uh, beyond Earth? I do. Great. What is a habit that you have that you're glad that you have? Uh, that I don't tend to give up easily. Mm, I like that one. And what uh, TV show are you watch watching right now? Ah, uh, I haven't been watching much TV. Uh, but when I do, it's a lot of HGTV. Love it. And one final question. And what is the last thing that you've read other than your email? Mm. I just finished, oh, let me think about it. Um, so I just finished Adam Grant's Think Again. <laughs> okay. I think time's up. Time is up. All right. 
So, Julie, as we come around the final turn, uh, I would love to hear about one person who is meaningful to you in your life. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that you personally know. What did you learn from them, or what do you admire about them? Um, I am going to pick my uh, paternal grandmother. Um, So... She was, uh, so she was born in 1909. Um, so she saw a lot of change over her life. Um, so she grew up riding horses to get where she wanted to go. Um, and at the end of her life, she actually could operate a computer reasonably well for, for her age. Um, so I was, I was always impressed with her ability to evolve and, and make changes and, um, she was an incredibly feisty human, um, so she lived by herself clear until the end when she was 98 um, and had built a number of businesses. Business strengths uh, or business knowledge was not always her strength, but she always really wanted to do things um, that would help people have a better experience. Um, and so she... She's faced a lot of challenges, and she always responded um, really productively to those. So her, um, in 1988, we had a big fire in Yellowstone, similar to kind of some of the stuff that's happening in the West right now, and she lost her home and her business, um, and she rebounded, bought herself an RV, went to Arizona, regrouped, came back, built a new business, built a new house, um, and, you know, just got on with it. And there's not very many 79-year-olds that'll do that. So uh, she was just a really incredibly tenacious um, and, and uh, character-filled human being. So she, she was somebody I, I admired a lot. Julie, it has been a complete pr- pleasure to have you on the podcast and to just um, to, to talk with you a little bit about what you do and, and your passions for simulation. We so appreciate the conversation. We have one final question for you. What is one hope you have for simulation in the future? One of the things that I'm, I'm most excited about, and this actually piggybacks off something Christine said earlier, I think there's so much that we could learn from each other, from human healthcare and, and veterinary healthcare in terms of simulation and, and what makes for effective simulation, how we measure return on investment, all of those important questions. Um, and, you know, I've always, we always look to human healthcare for sort of what we should be doing in veterinary medicine because often we're behind. Um, in this case, I think in some ways we have the opportunity to to be helpful um, in big picture stuff because I think we're a bit of a fruit fly. So because our students have to go out and practice pretty early on, you know, one of my hopes is that um, we can do a lot more cross collaborative research and, and development in simulation to really help move things forward, um, sort of regardless of what resources institutions have or programs have to be able to, to make things work that we understand the really important foundational elements and 
we don't all feel like we have to have the big fancy toys, although the fancy toys are awesome and I'm often jealous. Um, but what, what we can do with simple things as well and, and how those can potentially be beneficial to learners. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julie. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks. This has been Beyond Simulation with your hosts, Christine Park and Bob Kaiser, together with our guest, Dr. Julie Carey. Please join us for a future episode. Mm-hmm.